Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Jim Bruton. Jim was a previous guest, and we spoke about his near-death experience from crashing an airplane. And he returns today to talk about his new book, The Practice in Between, The Art of Letting Go, which shows how to take what he learned from his NDE and apply it to your life. Jim, thanks for coming back today and welcome. Hi, Jeff. It's nice to see you again. All right. So what made you decide to write this new book? Well, the the first book that came out in May of last year, um, the In Between, A Trip of a Lifetime, was about... My life before my near-death experience, uh, the near-death experience itself that followed the plane crash, and then what came after that, you know, sort of like, well, what now? And uh, starting to look at different aspects of life uh, from a new perspective. And as I've said before, it's like there was Jim 1.0, there was the reboot of the near-death experience, and then there was Jim 2.0 in search of the operator's manual or the customer support number. Uh, but it led to a lot of great interviews, uh, like we had and a lot of, you know, like a lot of podcasts, a lot of public speaking. And it was very enjoyable to share the story with people. Uh, and the response started to become more and more from people. How do we put some of this into practice in our own lives, you know, without crashing an airplane? And I thought about that for, for a while. And I think sometimes you just have to live life to, to find that truth. So uh, late last year, early this year, I started putting some notes together. I had my own YouTube channel and uh, started writing for that. So I had, I had plenty of material to collect from and plenty of living to draw from as well. And so I, um, <clears throat> so I started putting the, the book together and I, you know, I broke out different chapters according to where whatever it is I had to say could be applied, you know, like relationships or logic and emotion, uh, you know, work and just lots of things, you know, and, and we'll go through some of those during, during our talk today. Um, so it looks like the response has been good for the second book. It looks like people are finding ways to apply it. And that is, you know, giving them a different perspective and maybe in some ways bringing them some peace. All right. The second half of your title says the art of letting go. So would you say that's the most important thing that we need to take into our lives? It's just letting go of things. It is. It is. I mean, you know, when, when Buddha says you know, like attachment to things that are changing is the source of misery, whereas attachment to things that aren't changing are the source of happiness. I mean, the attachment is the critical word there. So it's it's what we attach to. Well, for most of us living in the world, having an earthly existence, we get attached to things here. And of course, the only thing that's constant here is change. So, um, and I think we can really see it. So there was a, an interesting saying one time. Um, <clears throat> I'm sure a lot of people have heard of the samurai warriors in Japan, the famous swordsmen from the Middle Ages, they had a really cool saying. And it was that on the field of battle, when a samurai draws his sword, but he throws his scabbard away, it's because on this day, he's free to fight his best. He will never need it again. And I think we can figure out what the rest of that story would be. But it really is about letting go. And interestingly, in uh, Buddhism and in Taoism, there is an awful lot said about letting go. And in the Bible, when it says, um, be still and know that I am God, the more literal translation is let go and know that I am God. 
So over and over, we keep getting this message of uh, not hanging on to things and just letting go and, and sometimes just seeing what happens or see what happens with the minimum of our interference based on our desires or our fears or our prejudices or our intentions. And when I was laying in the hospital recuperating from my plane crash, as the memory of my near-death experience was just cycling over and over in my head with greater um, intensity, greater depth with each iteration, at one point, um, it's like God removed the representation of alcohol. Now, not that it matters, but I'm not an alcoholic, never have been. But I guess after a stressful day of work before the crash, if I came home, I might want to have a rum and Coke, or if it felt good, maybe two or three. Um, I don't think it was creating any problems in my life. But at the same time, I was aware as a vegetarian for 44 years, it was something I was probably supposed to do. And while I was laying there in bed, like I said, the representation of alcohol was removed from me. And God or the voice of the in-between asked me, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to take it with you, meaning into my future as part of my life? Or do you want to leave it behind? said, if you want to take it with you, if you want to continue using it, I will carry it for you. If you want to leave it behind, I will remove all attachment to it. It'll be as if you never had a drink in your life, and it will have no pull on you. Well, like a knee-jerk knee reflex, I said, leave it behind. And he said, okay. And with that, the representation just dissolved and disappeared. And I haven't had, and this was just over five years now, October 6, 2016. I uh, haven't had a drink since. It's like being a vegetarian. Eating meat is something other people do. Now it's like having alcohol is something other people do. I could sit in a bar and talk to friends. I could go into a liquor store and buy a bottle of wine to take to dinner for other people to enjoy. I just, it just doesn't even occur to me to, to, to drink. So that's why I started learning about the power of letting go. And at some point, the in-between even said to me, all the force of will you'll ever need is found in the art of letting go. Always live life in celebration of the individual spirit. For no one and no thing can stand before the brilliance of a truly naked soul. So... There was so much wrapped up in that, you know, the talking about, you know, the, the, the brilliance of a truly naked soul speaks to living authentically. And, and that's also in my book uh, that if we live authentically, even an atheist can be spiritual because, you know, when people say, would you rather be loved or respected? My thought is, well, if there's no respect, there's certainly never going to be love. And I would also say if people want to live spiritually, you first have to live authentically. You know, Socrates, man, know thyself. That means accepting yourself warts and all. And, you know, many are the people, I would say, who are in church looking out the window on that Sunday morning at some drunk waking up on a park bench, maybe judging them. And some of these drunks, I imagine if you went up and talked to them about, you know, you're not doing very good, are you? that many of them would probably say, you know, you're right, I'm not. And they would, without defense, or without justification, own their shortcomings, own where they're falling down. That's the kind of authenticity I'm talking about. And I think we may have more to learn in terms of humility in that ego is the last to fall from them than we do from people sitting in church who are judging. Because in truth, he who does not have a temple in his heart will never find his heart in any temple. So these are some of the realizations that come out of just that simple experience I had in the hospital and that simple statement and exercise of uh, just watching something evaporate. Could you say that in a way of letting go, a person could decide that I'm not a person who drinks alcohol anymore, so I just let go of that. Would that be right? It can be. I would say it's you know, because of the power of attachment, it's like you have to exchange that with a, a different attachment. I would say of equal power or equal distraction or something. It, it's really hard if you if you have a deep attachment, whether it's for 
drugs or alcohol or overeating or just to simply say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. You really have to replace it with something that your attention can be equally focused on. See, I mean, like a near-death experience is, is very powerful in that regard because it's so intense. And intensity redefines a sense of self. That's why we have PTSD counselors. You know, it's, if you've come from war, you've been physically or it's really hard to replace that with an, a different intensity uh, or a different sense of self that has equal intensity, I'd say. But I would say it can be done. Uh, it's like changing TV channels. In the end, it's really about mastering your mind versus your mind mastering you. And again, I talk about how to start to make friends with your mind in the book. For instance, like when you want to sit and meditate, it's very easy when we want to be still for the mind to want to be active because the mind is used to activity. This is the plane of intensity. We come from the sublime planes where things are very subtle to the to the Disney world of the universe because we want to go on all the rides and have the laughter and, and you know, have the money, the power, the, the, the crazy parties. We want to have all those things. So we come here to have that existence. Um, but what we have to do is we have to start to choose the sublime, the subtle, over the manifest and the intense. And until we do that, we, we can't even notice that it's there because we're, we're too much involved in all the excitement here. Some of my near-death experiencers will tell me that they realize that we take life too seriously. You know, we should just take it easy here. Are you kind of saying the same thing? Yes. I mean, obviously... It's kind of like being in a, a movie or in a play and we're all actors, right? We have to play our parts. We have, you know, we have to read from the script. Sometimes we go off script. But in the movie, if something's important, we all have to kind of pretend it's important. Some people go beyond belief and just like or pretend and go into belief and really say, oh, no, this really is important to me. And we have to respect that for them. You know, if if um, trying to perpetually look young is important to them. We have to respect that. We don't have to practice it ourselves. We could just grow old at our own pace and in our own way. But other people who are afraid of that, we, you know, if we're respectful and kind, it goes a long way. But I think one of the things that came out of my near-death experience that I've tried to share with people to help is don't take anything too personally. Um, everybody is in their own movie and all the rest of us are more among their supporting cast of thousands and they have their narrative they're living according to. And that's why they tend to categorize us or put us in little cubby holes that maybe we don't always fit for ourselves, but for them, that's just fine where we fit. But by removing ourselves from the equation, it allows us to stand back and see things a little bit more as they are to sort of understand why these people are in the movie of that particular movie of their own creation. Uh, and I'll give you an example. One time I was talking to a very attractive lady. And I said, I'll bet you have a lot of problem on dating websites. <laughs> she said, yeah, I do. I said, yes, because so many men that you talk to are projecting every sexual fantasy they've had uh, on you since they were 13 years old, maybe. And until they turn that projector off, as Carlos Castaneda said in the books of Don Juan, turn off that internal dialogue, they can't see the person behind the projection. So their concept of you is all based on Friday or Saturday nights instead of Monday mornings. And until, until they can turn that projector off and see the person behind the projection, it's impossible for them to have a real relationship with you and to see you as you truly are. And take that into any other aspect where you're meeting people who are asking the question, what can you do for me? You know, as, as people enter different situations, they're asking three questions. What can you do for me? Or how are you relevant? Or are you irrelevant? Or are you a threat? So if you think about it, only one of those questions leads to an answer that kind of builds a good relationship, which is sad. But it's pretty true. I mean, think about your first day at a new school, your first day at a new job, what's going on in your mind? You're going on through this categorization so you know who you need to avoid and who you can rely on to, you know, get you through the beginning stages of having that job and then keeping that job or 
personal relationship or many other aspects. But if we stand back and say, you know what, this isn't all about me. All of these people had lives before I showed up and they'll have lives long after I'm gone. And then we start to approach a, a sense of equanimity. And equanimity is where I see you as a standalone person, just like I see me, that your life is just as important to you as my life is to me. And your story is just as important to you as my story is to me. And that's where we start to really have empathy. And we start to understand why people are the way they are. And once we do that, and we take things a little less personally, allows us to remain calm through the ups and downs of joy and sorrow. And again, just see things and people for who they are and realize you know, no one instance has to define somebody in their lives that they're basically it's like there are no good and bad people. They're just people who make good and bad decisions. And sometimes they're just overwhelmed people who are doing the best they can. And it's so nice not to get wrapped around that axle of judgment and emotion and finger pointing. And, and that sort of leads to another big topic in my book about how so much of the world, especially over this past year and a half, there's been so much binary thinking. It's this or it's that. It's either conservative or it's liberal or it's Democrat or it's Republican or it's vaccinated or not vaccinated or, you know, gender uh, differences and race differences. That That's what the conversation becomes about. And the problem is when we have this binary polar opposite thinking there's no room in the middle for accommodation or for compromise. And there's no room in which we can learn by association because it's my way or the highway. There's no communication. There's only compliance. And if you don't comply, you're canceled. So where does that leave us as a society, especially as we've been isolated by, you know, having to stay home or out of school with COVID? Like I went to a, a movie theater last night to watch a, a movie I couldn't tell you when the last time I went to a movie theater was, but it was really interesting. I'm, I'm talking to people and uh, smelling cologne and perfume for the first time and seeing people, you know, on their phones or having conversations. And I realized, wow, I've been away from this for a while because, you know, so much of um, this, again, polarization of pushing people away from each other's had a big effect. Um, but what we have to do is continue to hold true to the fact that we can politely have different views and that through talking we can come to accommodation we can come to compromise that we can actually see what we share more than focus on what makes us different and i think a lot of what it boils down to is the sharing of the same values and you know chances are people who live in your neighborhood have the same values as you to a great degree and if we can just continue to socialize, if we can see our kids playing and we, we talk while we're out mowing the grass or whatever, next thing you know, we're having a barbecue together and our kids are playing together and babysitting for each other. And again, it, then it doesn't matter what planet you come from or what you know color you dye your hair, your skin color, or you know who you personally connect with at home uh, or what job or politics you have. We're focused on what brings us together and what we share. And I think that's that's what's important. And this isn't something you can legislate. It's only something you can have through society and through communication. And that takes work. And maybe that's right now why a lot of people shy away from it, because it does take work. You know, Eric Fromm's book, Run From Freedom, I think had a lot to say about human behavior. Quite a few of my NDE experiencers have trouble implementing their NDE after they come back, especially the ones that are more fresh. Since you've experienced an NDE, was it like that for you? And why do you think some of those people have so much trouble? Sure. Well, one of the things, one of the refreshed perspectives every NDE comes back with is again, you know, happiness isn't found in things, happiness is found in experiences. Experiences are usually had with other people. And for me, I was told when I was getting kicked out of the in-between my near-death experience, said everything is interconnected and pay more attention to your relationships. And I think in truth, relationships are the only thing that's really important. We don't come here even to cure cancer or go to the moon 
We come here for the relationships. Because on your deathbed, what are you thinking? I want to spend more time in the office? I wish I'd taken better care of my relationships. Yeah. So I think that's that's a big point to remember. So to your point, when we come back, uh, you know, here, we normally look at life through the filters we want. On the other side, we look through the filters we need. And what we realize we need are our relationships. So the first thing we will find our challenge when we come back are our relationships. Why is that? It's not because they changed. changed. It's because we've changed. We're no longer the same people. The, the, the people we were really died in the accident or the illness or the whatever, you know, the plane crash. And now this is what we have left. And there's no going back. There's only building anew. To give you an example, there's a, you know, for like the normal people in our country, there's a 53% divorce rate. To me, that's already an epidemic. I mean, your odds are already against you by slightly over two to one. For indie ears, it's up to 78%, which is a 50% increase more than an already epidemic rate. Okay, why? It's because your spouse will look at you and say, you know, you look the same and you sound the same, but you're not the same. We don't share the same dreams or fears or hopes, desires, even prejudices. Um, you know, how, how, how we relate to each other is entirely changed now. And while, yeah, you, you might have a more spiritual outlook on life, maybe maybe the, I didn't sign up for that. You know, maybe the spouse didn't sign up for that at all. And this is true for my own case. Uh, it's not was never very interested in, would never refer to my NDE as the NDE. She would only refer to it as the plane crash. And we went to a therapy for 18 months until I finally said, you know, our marriage vows say till death do us part. What happens when one of us dies, no matter that we return? Our covenant is broken. And the only reason we stay together now is because we choose to and not because we have to. And like I've said, that, that truth wasn't well received, but to me, it, it's a very fundamental truth. So what happens is this is what a lot of NDEers are finding. And, and at the recent IANS conference, um, my NDE knowledgeable therapist, Diana DeFranco, and I presented this very case out there for the entire um, audience uh, for for IONS, for the, it's an international audience, and we've gotten some really important responses. And the reason I say this is, if I'm an organization that was created for a specific population, and 78% of population is having a really hard time keeping it together, beginning with their marriages, I think I would talk about it. And I sort of subscribe to like an AA type model, right? Because Rather than having therapists who might be really good with like dealing with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, for which we can certainly say there seems to be a component with the intensity and the redefinition of self that an NDE brings, if they don't recognize the validity of the NDE, which caused all this, you're probably in the wrong office. I would rather talk with people like I'm saying with AA, where help comes from within the community. I'd rather talk to other people. And, and so in this case, there's 78% of people who could talk to me about the challenges they went through as they eventually went through a divorce. But guess what? There are also 22% of people who could talk about how they were able to keep it together. So that's pretty important to say that, to recognize the fact that we have a huge resource right there who can help us integrate the experience into our lives. People who can talk about not only the, the, the marriage, but how they related differently to their kids or their friends, how they Related to work, a lot of people come back and change their jobs because it just doesn't feed their soul anymore. Um, so there, there are a lot of typical hallmarks of challenge, like handling money. Um, they don't get so angry anymore. They may not feel like going to church anymore. Some people become more spiritual than religious, and some people see religion in a new way. And so they do keep going to church, but now they, they bring a new attitude, a new vision to it. And their words are different as well. And it's interesting how after an NDE, you can say the same truths you did before, but now there's a different resonance in those words, a resonance of authority. And people respond to that. 
I wonder if the 25% of the people that do stay together, it's because they like this new person even better than they were before their NDE. I think it runs a full range of that as at one end of the spectrum. And at the other end is simply the allowance. They may not be very spiritually inclined themselves, but they may allow for their spouse to go through this change just like, you know, we, we all reach times of life that we're going through what we call the change of life. Men go through one kind and women go through another kind. And the important lesson there is to be supportive of each other, to be there for each other, to listen. And when asked, offer perspectives and insights, but don't try to force the person to be something they are not. And sadly, it's just saying, you know, 78% of marriages aren't built for that, aren't built that way. And, a very, and, and the minority are, the 22% are. So I think it does run that range from people who will just allow you to go through your changes to people who, like you say, I like the new you. You know, we, we don't seem to argue as much and you're more patient with the kids and I like your, your fresh perspective on life. And, you know, and so they're happy to be along for that ride and create that space around you in which you can feel safe to explore sometimes out loud this new this new sense of self one of your chapters is called eternity and being present within it can you tell us more about that chapter yeah it was you know when when i was in the in between i said you know i don't even know where i am right now i said you're in the impossible now you're standing inside the eternity of a single moment and i said that makes no sense whatsoever i said well can you remember the world to which your body belongs? And I said, nope, <laughs> I couldn't. I strained. If someone had come up to me right then and said, if you stay here any longer, you can't go back, I would say, go back where? To your family. What family? So the, the challenge there, and this has been brought out in several sort of borderline out-of-body experiences since I've returned that usually happen around, you know, like one or two or three in the morning. And that's when you're present, it's really hard to remember what just happened and impossible to predict what's coming next. And this is a topic a lot of NDEers have brought up independently all around the world. You'll see them talk about it in general uh, on different forums, or you'll see them post a, some, something on Facebook, and, and you are so amazed that this is such a universal phenomenon with indie ears and that's that um as time goes on you start to question your memory you, you start to feel like hey i'm forgetting things and i said you're no longer needing your memory to tell you what you know you're actually starting to rely more on intuition and i guess you could call it flying without a net and i know that when i was going through that period even to talk about something that is so unforgettable as my nde i still had to keep some notes up because I would become so present in talking about this incredibly present experience, I would just start, I would just almost stop and stare at the screen and I'd have to like refresh where I was going with, with my notes. And like I said, it really sounds strange. And, and you know, it's not like, you know, becoming forgetful or dementia or Alzheimer's because when you do focus on something, it's with this incredible laser penetrating intensity uh, that I don't think it, it you were losing your memory because you were also losing your focus and your attention you could do. So I think a lot of this is about how to become more present through meditation uh, and, you know, and sort of say, you know, extending the eternity into the now. And there's been a lot, of, there are so many people who talk about the power of the now and being in the now and letting go to be in the now and, uh, Eckhart Tolle, Tolle and Adam and Alan Watts and the Dalai Lama. I mean, just tell me. And like I said, when, when God says, let go and know that I am God, he's saying be present. So I think a big part of that is finding out what meditation works for you. I recommend a meditation. For me, I drive. I go out and drive. I don't do so well just sitting still, um, but I can and I have. Sometimes I do. But some people lay down to meditate. Some people walk to meditate. Uh, meditation can even be in doing things, in gardening, or for me, in building an airplane. I just would like to do it all by myself. And very quietly, I realized this is a meditation. 
And so, I mean, archery, you know, like look, look at the, over in the Japanese traditions, you know, whether it was archery or again, gardening, or even the tea ceremony, everything was like a, a form of meditation. And that this meditation can bring about a state where you become very present because you just let go of things. For instance, in meditation, if thoughts come, let them come and then they go. Let emotions come and then let them go. It's like standing in a river where things are coming down the river like little, it could be like little beach balls or whatever, and they bump into you and then they pass on around you and they continue on. Don't grab onto them. Just let them bump into you and let them go. And that's pretty much what, what it can be like. It's just always be in that moment of being present and just breathe. And when we are not hanging on to things, when we're not clinging on to things, we start to realize what is us and what is not us, and that we're always in this process of becoming. And it's when we start to feel that and we start to realize this is a step toward being present, this is what was meant by pray without ceasing. You can't pray without ceasing, like walk around, you know, doing Hail Marys in your head 24-7 all day long. What you have to do is enter a space in which just being is meditation, in which just being is a state of prayer. That is what is meant by pray without ceasing. Simply live that life. And so, again, it's, it's really all about not hanging on to things and just continually letting go of things and, and question everything. You know, don't, you know, question your truisms um, and don't make them your aphorisms. That's very important. One of the practices I put out there is this, and, and it's sort of based in what I could call emotional shielding or how to maintain your balance. Because, you know, if we're on that sine wave of joy, sorrow, joy, sorrow, chasing one and avoiding the other, it's hard to be on that main axis. You know, we've all seen that sine wave with that line that goes down the middle. That line that goes down the middle is really where we want to be. And that's the state of acquiescence where we accept joy or accept sorrow without blinking, because that's what life is. And we just don't get perturbed. And the way to do that was, for instance, um, I'm sure everybody can relate to this, whether you um, were applying for different jobs and you you finally get off the phone with, with someone saying, we're going to make you an offer, or you're in sales. Someone says, we're going to buy your stuff or you're, you're, you're interested in dating someone, and as you hang up the phone, they say, okay, we're going to go on our first date, and we're very excited, and you hang up. In those states of success, you, you're, you're so, in a way, it's like you get full of yourself. It's like, yes, you know, the, the thrill of the hunt. I finally caught what I was chasing, and I feel so good. And those, meaning, meaning, uh, those feelings of expansiveness, we start to identify with. And instead of saying, I feel elated. We say, I am elated. Instead of, I feel attractive, I am attractive. Instead of, I feel success, I am success. And when you, just like on the, the counter side of that, when you're happy, instead of saying, I feel happy, you say, I am happy. When you're sad, instead of saying, I feel sad, you say, I am sad. Anytime we say, I am something, we become that roller coaster ride of up and down. How do you get off? Because you're now in the front seat. And you're, you know, I don't know how you get off something that you say, I have become that. But when you say, I feel that, you're acknowledging the transient nature of those feelings that for now I can feel this. And then when it's not that, because otherwise tomorrow, after I've juiced all the excitement out of this moment, I'm going to need another fix. And unless I, you know, make more first dates with more <laughs> with other people and maybe get in trouble. Um, it might be now I need the next sale or now I need my next goal with, um, you know, a successful interview and then a successful, a good offer and then starting and then hanging on to that. But, you know, eventually the excitement of that new job will wear off. So what you have to do is just simply say, um, I feel successful. This is great. Uh, and just, again, go with that, allow that wave of up and down to go. But when you don't ride that wave itself and you stay on that middle axis, that wave is less up and down. It starts to constrict more toward that middle axis. And now you can be content. You don't need the thrill of the hunt and you don't need the agony of defeat. 
you really can just say, I am content. I can see, I can see the natural play of things here. And it allows you, again, by taking yourself out of the equation to just stay focused on the target. When you're focused on the target, success takes care of itself. You don't have to say, I'm, sh- I'm shooting my arrow to the target to win anything. I'm just shooting because I enjoy shooting. Success will take care of itself. So this is, this is some of what prepares the ground for how to live in the now because we're not chasing anything in particular. We're just being in that moment. Well, some people believe that we choose to come here and where we come from, it's love and complete happiness and bliss. So we choose to come here and experience life. So if you, if you go on that premise, it's almost like we came here to experience all this highs and lows, pain, sorrow, joy. Then it's kind of like, what do we do? You know what I mean? Like, well, uh oh, we chose this, but now it's too much for us to handle. And now we're having problems with it. Or is that what we're supposed to do? But that's again, if we're all going on the premise that we chose to come experience this anyways. Sure. I've got a perfect example for you. Okay. You know how we, we've had great ages in our history uh, that eventually ended, you know, whether it was, you want to talk about like the fall of Atlantis or the fall of the Roman empire or the, you know, the rise and fall of Germany, uh, the fall of the old South, you know, things like this. We, we have these uh, crescendos in the world. And then they had, we have these crashes, nothing lasts forever. And, Especially right now, you know, as we're going through some challenging times, not just in the United States, but worldwide and how to cope with all these ambiguities and uncertainties going on in our lives right now. Again, you know, principally COVID for for many. Um, People will ask, why did I have to be born right now? And you'll have other people saying, you know, the end is nigh. And a friend of mine one time said, there are no worse times than those we're living in. And I think that's true. You know, the world's been going to end for... (laughs) thousands of years right so i think i think there it's it's interesting to consider again step back for a moment consider that this is a big movie and we're all actors and we all have our scripts and we're reading from the scripts right you know um there really are no black and white people or male or female people we're all souls who are living in those vehicles that are defined in that way. And it only has a relationship to right here and right now. When we die, everything we thought we were is left at the door, right? We don't have any need for any of these distinctions up there. That's when we just look at each other and see our oneness. And and I'll have to ask you, how do you feel about something? I looked at you and I know. So in that we came here for the relationships and we came here for the intensity. Like you go to Disney world for the rides and the intensity and the excitement to relive your childhood. Think about it. You go to see some movies generally for the climax. The climax is considered to be a pretty important part of the story, right? If there was no climax, it'd be like, how do I know? How do I know that everything, how do I know there was justice in the universe? How do I know that after, you know, a long, hard battle, something was won, whether that battle was to, to win the, the love of your life or whether it was to crawl out of the dirt and become a millionaire or, or to survive or win a war or something like that. The climax is a huge part of defining that film. Well, if you think about it, a lot of times in a film, the climax might be when you have that big earthquake or the meteor hits or the, the first bombing occurs or uh, things are, are changing in a way that you know it's never going back. Uh, so if you come here for intensity, again, understanding that from up there, before you've taken on the role, before you've taken hold of the script, before you've committed yourself to this part in the movie, Living and dying, rich and poor, black and white, male or female or anything in between, looks a lot different than it does once you're here. Mm-hmm. You know, up there, you could probably very almost cerebrally look at say, okay, well, um, I'm going to go down here. I'm going to live for 80 years. And on my 80th birthday, a truck is going to hit me on the street. Okay, fine. 
then you come down here and it looks a little different because it's so important because you're in the middle of it and you've sort of forgotten your original premise for taking that role on. So I really have wondered, are we here in these times because we chose to be? I mean, certainly we had some karmic relationships, but I'm sure by now, after millions of lifetimes, we have karma with everybody. So, you know, one time's about as good as another. But I do wonder, have we come down here right now? Because there are certain places and certain times here on Earth in which there is a climax. And we wanted to be in it because it's like being in an interactive 3D movie. Wow, this was exciting. Again, it might also be disastrous, but from up there, we just saw that this was exciting. It satisfied the the, the column, the checkoff mark for the excitement. Um, I have wondered that. And then, well, you know, so then in that seeing it that way, my being here, I'm less a victim and more a participant, even if my place isn't such a good one. Do you think it's right to say, hey, we chose to be here, so, you know, lighten up and accept it? I would challenge people to think that, to ask that question. Uh, and like, of course, a lot of people are going to have a problem and be like saying, well, <clears throat> should the person in an abusive relationship who's right. on the receiving end of the abuse say, did I choose this? Well, again, it depends on what you believe in in a broader context. Like if you believe in reincarnation and you believe in karma, then, yeah, the serial killer in the moment looks pretty bad and is making some very bad choices. Right. And they're poor victims, of course, we feel sorry for. But if you believe in reincarnation, if you believe in karma, if you believe in cosmic balance, do you also have to ask the question, well, is that serial killer creating new karma? Or are they picking up on a karmic debt? Is that person they're killing someone who killed them in a past life? See, ultimately, if you want to pursue the truth, no matter what you believe, you still have to ask hard questions and you really have to consider them again, dispassionately without getting all emotional or even too logical about them. Just think it through and say, if these fundamental truths are true, then what questions have some validity here to ask? And these possible answers don't violate any of the truths we're considering as being substantive to our reality. And that's when you start to realize who's really interested in spirituality and who's not. The Dalai Lama himself said, religion is the tip of the finger. Spirituality is the moon to which the finger points. And that makes sense. So you went to a post-apocalyptic world. Do you think that that was a construct of your consciousness due to whatever you were going through at that time of your life? Or do you think that was a place that you actually went to that you were meant to or deserving to go to? Well, like I said before, here we see life through the filters we want. You know, when we look in the mirror in the morning, again, or, or when we look in a mirror, again, before that first date, we're seeing the most attractive person. If we're looking in that mirror before our first day of school, we're seeing the most intelligent, most socially connected person. If it's before our, our first uh, interview or our first day on a new job, we're seeing the most competent person, right? But over there, we see life through the filters we need. So what we get over there is what we need. So I sort of think of it almost like a holodeck on Star Trek. You know, it's something that was created specifically for us at that time. It might have been created to kind of uh, talk us off the ledge and <laughs> stop hyperventilating. Like I may say, yeah, yeah, you're dead, but you're okay. Notice you're still alive, you know, something like that. Uh, you know, otherwise, why do we need to see dead loved ones? Why do we need to see compassionate uh, angelic beings in, in uh, angelic environments and things like that? And even though we see a life review in every action we've had on people's lives, some which may not be so pleasant, we still understand there's no judgment. Again, it's all about just, just calm down, just calm down, just calm down. For me, I do feel that what I saw and what I experienced was tailor-made for me and probably existed only for the time I was there. And honest truth, uh, I 
I think it looked like it did, like this huge dead cityscape, this very gothic uh, cityscape, because it provided no distraction. I think if I'd showed up somewhere and there were, forgive me, rainbows and unicorns and angels flying around, that for me might have been distracting. I believe I was given one mission and one mission only. And in the circumstances in which this was presented, I think, or I should say the context in which it was presented was designed to not allow for any distractions. It was like, and I said this when I was there, it's like it was designed so I can do one thing, one thing only, and there's no chance to screw it up. And that's when it said, well, because what I was there to do, I was being given the opportunity to see what choices in my future would be to my spiritual detriment. And the way I was doing that was by reaching around inside this egg-shaped, construct of I would call it like the egg of destiny and within it were all these future probabilities if you will that were coming toward the present that I could choose from some of them I would say were good some of them might be uh, wrong in terms of I would make a mistake and some might be bad that would be to my spiritual detriment and for my personal gain and the only way I could determine which ones to remove was by reaching around in there and touching them. And if one caused me pain, that was the pain of making that choice. And I removed it and threw it away. And then everything recalibrated for the absence of that one. So over and over and over, I was essentially stacking the deck or cleaning up my future, if you will. But that's when I said, uh, one time I saw this huge growing pile of gears that was discarding. I said, am I going to die sooner from doing all this? And it said, um, for those who make poor use of their choices, offering fewer possibilities could be called mercy. So, again, by having nothing else to distract me in that environment, I was able to stay on target. I was able to stay focused. And I was able to do what I needed to do with the time I had available there to do it. I know you have one child, a daughter. I don't know if you have multiple, but if your daughter was young what kind of life lessons would you give her if she was a young child from your NDE? Well, um, as I mentioned, being in terms of marriage therapy, I do have one son who lives in England uh, by blood. And then I married a widow with three babies. And that's mm. the divorce situation I was just talking about. Mm. And th these three children are great. Um, they, they were babies, two, four and six when I met them. And now they're like 22, 24 and 25. And they all... I mean, because they were there for me, you know, with my plane crash, they came to the hospital and saw me and they've seen what's come after. They're all very understanding of my new perspective on life. And I would say that with children in general, it's not so much what you say is what you do because they're watching you and they're also catching all your inconsistencies, right? We can preach one thing and so many times we do another. And it can be simple things like, you know, don't snack before dinner, you know, for, for all kinds of reasons. And then they see you in there eating a bag of chips <laughs> in your office before dinner or, or, or kinds of other things. It's impossible to, to speak the truth all the time and, and have it 100% the way you live life. So I think a big part of it is, um, just some of the things we've said before, like, you know, if they come home, because social connection is so important to kids. I mean, suicide is the second leading cause of death with teenagers. Why? It's not because they just found out they have a terminal disease. It's not because they just lost their job. It's because what we said before, relationships are the most important thing. That sense of connection. That's why they're on their phones 24-7, even though. We seem to be the loneliest people in the world, too, for all this connection. But being connected and feeling connected is so, so important. So I think anything we can not only say, but everything we can do that reinforces that need, which, again, was brought back from my near-death experience, is good. And I think a lot of it is about how we connect to people. Here's an example. It would be very easy to be young, just as it is when we're an adult. And if you're single, you might say, gosh, you know, where is my perfect mate? You know, where's my perfect boyfriend? Or where, where is my perfect girlfriend? No matter your orientation. Very natural question. I said to my kids, you know, <clears throat> the better question to ask is how do I need to be loved? Because, again, that goes back to man, know thyself. Accept yourself, warts and all. Because if I know how I need to be loved, I'm being authentic. 
to myself. If I say, where is my perfect boyfriend or girlfriend? Ah, that's projecting my desires out there into the world, right? And that's what we don't want to do. We'd rather understand what it is that makes us tick. Because once I understand how I need to be loved, I can start to ask the next questions of what is it? What kinds of things make me feel appreciated? What kind of things make me feel engaged? You know, what kind of things am I good at? And that is where we start to take the meaning of life, to feel fulfilled, to, to pursue spiritual evolution. And we can then back that in to what is the purpose of life in terms of our unique abilities, our unique desires, our unique uh, even our unique fears. You know, what is it I can do that feels good to me? And that's when we start to understand I need to live my life in terms of it, what I res- what resonates with me. And I need to be around people whose truth resonates with me. It brings out the best in me because, again, that, that word educate um, means to draw forth. And what what environment can I be in that informs my opinions? What environment can I be around? What people can I be around who educate me, who bring out the best in me and allow me to see them in terms of their highest potential? Because when we talk to people in terms of that highest potential and we want to draw out the good that's in them, they see that. They see it in our body language. They see it in the words we choose and the tone of our voice and the, the look in our eyes. And you just may be the first person in the world in their lives who's actually believed in them. And that will be life-changing for them. And it might even be for you. So that's what I teach my kids. Can you tell us the difference between linear and nonlinear thinking and how it applies to your NDE? Sure. Linear thought everybody's pretty familiar with. Like if you, if you are like a project planner, you know, you have a beginning, a middle, and an end of the project. Uh, if you're going to, whether you're going to clean your house or whether you're going to paint the house or whether you're going to the grocery store, you know, you make a list. You have one, two, three, four, five, six, eight, nine, ten. Ten being the very last thing you're you're going to do. You know you've you know what success looks like because you know what a finished painted house looks like, or you know what the last item on your grocery list looks like. So this linear we're pretty familiar with. Um, Non-linear, a lot of people are not very familiar with. <clears throat> so what happens is if you're trying to solve a problem, like if we were to just use like a piece of paper, you will go around and around and around that problem, uh, looking at it from different perspectives, but in a two-dimensional way, you know, pretty much asking the same questions. For example, who robbed the bank? That's a pretty linear approach. You know, there's a problem solving process detectives use that's fairly linear that um, has people going into a a people of interest bucket or a they didn't do it bucket. And then the people of interest bucket starts to further divide into, you know, like who is more likely to have done it versus who was less likely to have done it all toward pointing to an answer of that person from then. The nonlinear approach is, why do people rob banks? The nonlinear approach objectifies a problem and you walk around it, but you're looking at the way the light goes through its many facets. And the way that light is refracted itself carries a lot of information. So you tend to look at things as nexus or a center point through which a lot of lines of information and process flow. And so you become very process oriented instead of very content oriented content being who robbed the bank process why and i've i've certainly seen that in my life and i've seen it through these kind of borderline uh, out-of-body experiences and when you are thinking non-linearly it's very easy to become present because you're really focused on those moments in which the information passing through the problem or the process passing through the problem or the people passing through the problem are changing And that change itself from what was to what is during that moment to what comes after is so rich and full of information. And it's it's almost hard to express beyond that. You really just have to try it. So like I said, um, next time you have a problem, you can ask, why is that? Why is there that problem? Or you can stop and think, 
you know, I'm not, no, I'm sorry. Who, who is the cause of that problem? You're like, what, what is the quick yes, no, up, down, right or wrong, on or off answer to that problem? That's again, very linear, right? You know, I'm cold. Let me go turn on the thermostat. But if you think about why does that problem exist in the first place, that allows for a much more expanded thought, a, a sort of a spiraling approach, if you will, rather than just circling in one dimension, you're actually spiraling through multiple dimensions as you cross section that problem in different ways. And you are, you start to understand what impacts that problem, what lines of information. This is where we sort of get into that almost like chaos theory, you know, like the, the butterfly flapping its wings has a, a typhoon in Japan sort of thing. This is where we start to see greater interconnection between processes. For example, if you're if you're driving down the road and you see a person out jogging, you can say, OK, there, there's a person jogging. Do I recognize them? Are they a neighbor or, um, you know. Are they about to veer into the road? You, you sort of think about them that way. But if you also just for a moment look at them as someone who has multiple lines of information and life experience and relationships and just so many lines going through them, you start to really understand they're not just uh, a, a single embodied soul in that moment. They're a lifetime of many processes and experiences. And and that's what I say. You, you start to then understand how their lives compare to your own. Like we have a similar history maybe, or we have a similar desire because I like to jog, uh, things like this. So it's just a different way of more holistically looking at anything that's in front of you. All right, I'm running out of time. So I got to find out, do we find your book on your website or is it in, at Amazon or all the online places? Sure. Well, for, for the record, this is my first book, In Between a Trip of a Lifetime. It's on Amazon. And again, that's sort of the my life before the near-death experience, the near-death experience itself, and then the, starting to kind of deal with the coping of it afterwards. This is the second book, uh, The Practice in Between, The Art of Letting Go. And it starts off with my near-death experience because I just kind of wanted to baseline with that. And then from there, it goes into, uh, you know, Toto, we're not in Kansas anymore, kind of <laughs> change in perspective that followed. They're both on Amazon. Uh, you can just type in those titles and they'll pop up. There's also the audio version on Audible, and I, I'm the narrator for that. And, you know, you can also find my website at uh, In Between Productions, and that's with an S, In Between Productions.com. My NDE itself is there. Uh, there's a media page, uh, you know, like your, your links are on there, Jeff. But also you can reach out to me from there if you have any of your own experiences you want to share or any questions you want to follow up on. So that's uh, that's how you find my book. Do you have anything else you're working on that you want us to know about? There will be a third book, but uh, I don't really want to say too much about it yet because its story is being written now by Simply Living Life. Mm. So I'm not quite sure when it will be ready. But the second book, uh, it was interesting. It's like, I don't really remember writing it. And the way I wrote it, I was actually told in an out-of-body experience one morning on how to write it. And that was uh, to not, you know, like the words have the information, but the rivers of white that flow between the words and the letters have the meaning. And I didn't quite understand. And it was saying, write the book according to that philosophy, if you will, that format, that blueprint. And I didn't realize I had until I wrote the book. Hmm. So get the book and you'll see, and you'll actually see where I'm saying it's happening like that. And I, I thought that was pretty amazing. So sometimes you just feel like you're along for the ride. Yeah. I mean, maybe we are, we should always be thinking that we're just along for the ride. That's pretty much it. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you give us one last positive message? Yeah. Um, and it really came from the in between. It said, and it sort of goes back to when I think it's, Luke, maybe chapter 12, verse 21 says, you know, people will say, you know, the kingdom of God is here or it's there, but it's not here or there. The kingdom of God is within you. And when I was with the in-between, it said, the in-between isn't a place you go to that you come from. It's simply a place you are. And that is about being present, that it's really already with you. And, and you don't need to chase the next big thing to become the next big thing. All you have to do is trust in your own native intelligence to figure things out. 
and to, like I said, just start relying more on your intuition and less on what people say you should know. You'll, you'll be fine. You'll get to exactly where you're supposed to be. Well, thanks for that message, Jim. And thanks for coming back again. And when you get the third book, contact me and we'll get you back again. Thank you, Jeff. Good to see you. And it's great to see how busy you've been. This is wonderful. All right. Thank you very much. And um, you have a great evening. You too. All the best.